The Edifice Complex podcast is brought to you by DCM, the drawing specialists, Blue Rhythm Commissioning Software, and Sensor Suite, the future of intelligent buildings. Welcome to the Edifice Complex, the property design and development podcast. Let your hosts, Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean, keep you up with who is innovating and doing great work, perspective on the adjacent possible, and challenges to the status quo. Welcome to the Oedipus Complex. I am Robert Bean, your co-host and unofficial mediator here with my colleague, official agitator, friend, and Yoda of most everything to do with buildings, Mr. Adam Muggleton. Say hello, sir, Yoda. Hello, Yoda. So, interesting one today. So, we're speaking to Steve, who you should be introduced too soon, who works for one of the oldest landowners in the UK, in London. We'll talk about a little bit about that in podcast, but let's, let's get on to Steve. Yeah, so our guest today is a chartered engineer, having spent time between uh, all of our partners and Sir Robert McAlpine. Those are two well-known <laughs> firms around the world. As senior engineer and project manager and as project director for Grosvenor, whose activities span urban property, food and ag tech, rural estate management, and uh, support for um, philanthropic uh, initiatives. Some might know him for his writings in uh, Steve's newsletter, and as the organizer for Circular Steel, welcome to the show, Steve Delcrest. Thank you, Robert and uh, Adam. Steve, you uh, graduated with engineering with honors from uh, Loughborough University. I think that word has more OUs than any other word in the English. Loughborough, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Some people uh, say Luga Baruga, but uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, six in the morning here, and the funny's already started. That's good. Um, but that was like only 14 years ago, and you've become known as a pioneer in how industry designs into the, you know, the circular economy with a particular focus on material reuse. So it's really interesting. That's impressive acceleration. So tell us about your story. Now I work on uh, the client side, but there was never a, an intention to sort of to, to get there. There's no roadmap, really. I started off as an engineer, but even in the engineering sense, I mean, I was more site manager. I, I got chartered with Rob McAlpine through largely experience of you know, building big buildings on site as that kind of main contractor role and a little bit of design experience along the way. But really that kind of engineering experience is building stuff, putting it together. Obviously, you know, I'm not necessarily there with my hammer and, and nails and things, but certainly watching uh, what's going on and, and understanding how the big pieces fit together, different work packages and things. And then, uh, yeah, I drifted into project management, worked as a consultant. And anyway, since finding my way into the client side role, you know, I work in a company that's really focused on sustainability and, and a lot of social value and, and all of this stuff. And we've launched a lot of the kind of campaigns and policy that we follow it's really a big push from the business. And as you said, it's, it is a large business. But I just found myself on some projects, like innovation projects, trying to push the boundaries. And before you know it, I'm just sort of at the, at the front of the conversation around circular economy, as you say, particularly material reuse. And then again, before you know it, you're into the detail on a specific material. And there's a lot of people talking about steel reuse. And that's something that this year, I thought, Do you know what, I can put together a uh, an event and and bring a lot of these people that I end up talking to or come across. I can bring them together, and and so yeah, I ran one day event this year, and already planning the same uh, repeat next year. It's cool to be part of 
of the innovators, I suppose, you know, thinking <coughs> about what's coming next. It's not really a position I've necessarily been in before, but certainly being able to be in part of those conversations and then take it into projects that you're actually working on and, and trying to drive a team because that's the kind of privileged position I'm in now where I can have a whole design team and project team and actually kind of instill some of that ambition and desire to make these changes. So just to set the scene a little bit, we have quite an international audience and uh, Steve has had a similar journey to me, going back to me, right? So um, we both started in engineering and wound up in property development management. So in the UK, development manager is a job. So in North America, they call it project manager, but project manager is too generic. So what Steve is, is a development manager, which means you manage a development from here's a hole in the ground or an old building, what do I do with it? All the way up to demo, the sustainability angle, the design angle, getting the construction team appointed and overseeing them, then getting the tenants in and the occupiers. So it covers the whole ambit from literally zero to 100, right? That's a very specific role. Yeah. And Gro- Grosvenor, actually, Steve, can you just set the scene a little bit on, on Grosvenor? Yeah, tell us about it. Yeah, tell us about Grosvenor, who you're working for and the history there, because it's important people understand the context. You know, this is not the sort of firm you would traditionally think would be the most sustainable firm in the world, right? Yeah, well, one of the things you've just touched on there in the in the role of the, the kind of development manager, I mean, I sit in the development team, so, so we manage developments, but there's uh, many other aspects to the business and a large part of that is is really back to the origins of the Grosvenor company and the and the land ownership in Mayfair and Belgravia in London. The land passed into the Grosvenor family over 300 years ago when Mary Davis married somebody in the Grosvenor family, Thomas Grosvenor. That was where where the the land changed hands. But this kind of position we're in is is we see developments coming through, but we we're gonna we've held the land for a long time. And we're going to hold it for a long time in the future. So I've talked before about being a kind of custodian of the of the estate or a custodian of a plot of land. And well, we can come back to it, but it, it kind of, um, it really helps with some of the thinking around, you know, long-term decisions and some back to material use and circular economy, where you're not doing something for such a, perhaps a short-term gain, like, like some developers might. The Grosvenor company is still a family company, effectively a private company. We have our seventh Duke, Hugh. He's the ultimate boss, but there's a there's a whole trust arrangement that uh, that oversees the business. And um, I work for for the UK part, so Grosvenor Property UK, and we are you know a, a significant proportion of the business because this is where it it originated. But there are other ag tech businesses now around food and agriculture. And there are operating companies that that are in the um, in the North America area as well, and some in Asia. So you know, there's there's a lot of different parts to the to the business, but the origin is really here in in Mayfair and Belgravia. And so some of the the buildings that we work on, you know, have a huge amount of history as well. When you say land, like how large of land do you yeah. own? I want to say it's three hundred acres. Although yeah, um, I'd have to three hundred acres. That sounds I'd have right. to uh, double check. Oh, well, if you've got that, Adam, then I must yeah, be no, right. Sorry, yeah, across that. across uh, Mayfair and Belgravia. So there's a large amount of freehold of that, and then some buildings we manage, some buildings we have sold on on leases, and so there's a whole operation to kind of still curate and manage the estate because even something on a long lease needs to be approved by us, and so we can kind of control how some of that development happens. But then I work in the team where there's you know active development by us that we manage. 
So just to uh, put that again in the sort of North Amer- way North Americans can understand it, think of Game of Thrones 300 years ago. <laughs> this family married this family. The Lannisters and the dark Targaryens came together. Boom. Because marriage until very recently was a land with transaction mostly, right? Then, and I should say, Adam, yeah. that the land was just marsh when it changed hands. It was all hands. farmland, so, right? Yeah, the city of London at that point was over in the in the east, the, the old kind of city, and Mayfair in the West End really wasn't a thing. There was kind of stages of development through a couple of different eras over the next 100, 200 years where, where that land coupled with the vision of what it could be, and it did need vision to then bring master builders on board to really develop those plans and then realise that vision. And, and yeah. that's where we end up today. So you get these 300 acres of marshland, pretty low-grade land in a way, right? Farmland at best, right? The city moves west and the posh money moves west in London, right? So over a space of two, 300 years, it starts off, it gets developed, it becomes a... So Shep, So where it is now is the equivalent of Park Avenue in New York. It's prime, super prime real estate right now. 200 years ago, it was where, when it first started getting built up, Shepherd Market was a place where prostitutes used to hang out. It used to be a bad area. So everything you say went from marshland to like new build to bad area. And now it's super, super prime, like Park Avenue prime, right? And it's huge. It's one of the biggest land-owning blocks in London. Mm -hmm. So this is a family trust, essentially, right, that owns it. It still goes through the male line of the family and gets passed on. But it's basically a big business now. It owns large swaths of land. And in the UK, a long lease is treated and considered the same as freehold. So if you have a lease of 99 years or more on anything, you can buy and sell it as if it was a freehold. It's treated that way. So just to set the scene, because this isn't just some, you know, some guy on a kitchen table managing a big chunk of land. This is a proper business, a proper real estate development firm, and other businesses have flown off it. And it's got this amazing history. It's like Game of Thrones meets Monopoly, right? (laughs) Have I got and, that right? And the company has amazing values. So nice. we make such careful decisions and right. you know they are for all the right reasons as well. So the things we are able to do with such ownership is that we can curate the space. We we work with the local authority to to develop the space between the buildings as well as as the actual buildings that we own, you know, so the public realm and, and improving these things. We can curate the the kind of streetscape in terms of who is in which buildings and you know have different districts and and that's how how these spaces are managed you know we're we're one of the the great estates in the UK and London there are others but uh, as as you say Adam we're sort of one of the one of the first i suppose and yeah there's there's others that have similar values as well yeah i mean it's unique because as a block it hasn't really been broken up and sold off typically these yeah. things start big and then as generations screw up, they sell off a bit, sell off a bit, and sell off a bit. They haven't done that. So do you think the the fact this long-term ownership is one of the reasons it's driving the long-term view and the sustainability aspect of it? Uh, definitely. I, I think we we could call upon that to help justify decisions. We always say that we've owned it for, you know, over 300 years, this land, and, and we will for the next 300. So, uh. you know, there's there's smaller transactions and decisions that can be made within within the wider estate, but the, there's some of the core principles behind it and the wider curation of that, absolutely, they're, they're long-term. And I hear all the time in the industry that it's refreshing to hear people, you know, like me or others in the business talk about long-term decisions because, you know, that that is, I think, a it's a barrier to progress in some ways in that decision-making is, mm. is quite short-term. 
even if you make a decision thinking that you might hold on to something, you, you know, a different developer may know that there's a risk of needing to sell or, or wanting to sell or change a strategy. And so I still think that even with the right intentions, you probably you know, won't be as certain with what you're doing as you know, in a state like ourselves would be. Has the ethos of the original company going back 300 years, has it remained within the company or have you seen it changed through the generations? Hard to say exactly, but I think it's that custodian of the land, I think, is, is there throughout. You know, some of the vision is there throughout. You know, okay, vision changes and must change with time. But I, I think in those, in those kind of real high-level strategic ways, yeah, you can see that we're, we've still got that, that ambition, that, that vision to do, do right by the land and, and make better places. You know, there's definitely a consistent vision there that I think you can, you can see back from the start where, they, where you've got the marshland and, and it wants to, you want to improve that and, and make it something, a better space. And, you know, we're still in that, in that same place today. In fact, take Grosvenor Square, for example, that's some uh, projects that the square has been there for, for a long time, you know, most of the time that the estate has been around in, in, if you looked at a map, you would still see the Grosvenor Square, this green part of, of land in the, in the middle of Mayfair. And we are looking to really change the way that that, that looks and feels, adding a lot more biodiversity. You know, it's still going to be a, a green square, but at the moment it's, it's got really a couple of types of London plain tree a grass, a holly hedge, and there's a there's a lot more we can do with that. So, you know, to really make that an amazing garden square. So that's the kind of thing where there's a another another step change that we can apply just in that pocket. Mm. I was at 30 Grosvenor Square last month, which is the site of the old US Embassy, which is being redeveloped as a super prime hotel. And that square, I've been out of that square all my working life, basically. So you're talking what you're saying is like the buildings matter and the public realm matter. You're really into the whole like integrated thing, right? Absolutely. Yeah. The space between the buildings, it's uh, you know, it sounds a bit cliche, but that's that's what you know many people here talk about. And you know, there's a whole team focused on on the public realm. The space between the buildings is what people experience. You know, okay, you can make nice lobbies and indoor space, but when you think back to well being and what that really means these days, then you know, we want people to to enjoy that external space as well. So before we get on to sort of more circular economy stuff, what's the sort of gold standard then in sort of Grosvenor as a business for a green building right now? We have our own, we call it the sustainable development brief, but this right. is something that essentially is, from my perspective, it's a it's a project brief. And then that links up and sets targets that are aligned to our zero carbon pathway. So you know, there's a lot of work being done in the background to really understand the whole business across all scopes and to map that out. I'm just trying to think now we should be net zero carbon by 2040. I've got to ask, what's the definition of net zero carbon for you guys? Well, I'd have to check 2030 or 2040. I've said that now and I'm not sure. Yeah. Maybe we'll have to edit this bit. So net zero carbon is you absolutely have to reduce your emissions. So this is in line with the Paris Agreement. So we have understood our emissions across all the scopes. We have plans in place to to achieve that, and then we're we're looking at the highest quality carbon offsets to then offset the residual. But we 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 will be carbon neutral by twenty twenty five. There's embedded and operational, right? Operational for you guys is probably the bigger one, right? Because your long term holds 
your long property, right? It's the best yeah. way to describe it. And, and through the supply chain, that's a real yeah. challenge. But there's so much, again, go back to being a custodian of the land and what, what can that freehold, even though you've given the leasehold away, freehold and it gives us an element of control and any new leases that we yeah. that we uh, let have uh, green clauses in there and we will ask to be able to receive information about utility usage. And, and this allows us to start to essentially understand the usage better so that we can deal with the offsets for those um, for those emissions that are outside of our direct control. And is that something that your competitors are also following? Are you unique in the leadership role in this or are following it, I think, and it's not something that, you know, I'm directly managing, but I certainly think and believe that we are at the forefront of that, whether it's the strategy and understanding how to achieve that net zero carbon, or also the type of offsets. I learned about the kind of offsets that we're, the due diligence and and background work that we're doing on, on carbon offsets. And, you know, I'm no expert there, but the what I've heard this week is how we are absolutely at the at the front of that. Nice. And is that influencing architecture and architectural design? Are you starting to see influence in that area? Not through offsets as such, but we, when we convert that into our brief for the for the projects, you know, we have to hit a an embodied carbon figure and an operational intensity, you know, energy intensity figure. They're our targets to hit. We also, we also have to hit waste and biodiversity. So you know, we will measure projects in that regard. And I've heard people recently talk about, you know, there should be a financial budget and a carbon budget. I do agree with that, but I think the brief needs to be such that there's flexibility with the team to work out how to achieve that target. You know, we don't need to say the facade should do X or the, the floor should do Y. If we know the target, then a bit like you would on a on a budget, financial budget for a project, those component parts could be higher or lower than planned so long as they add up to to you know achieving the right target or staying within budget whether that's financial or carbon like that's where i think uh, we we need to go i've often said to qs as i said it to one last week i said uh, really you know they're the bean counters they if they count things they could easily count carbon as well you know, <laughs> their role is a quantity surveyor yeah absolutely um, and actually it sounds silly, but I think there's a bit of sense there. They, they, they might have not have all the expertise, but they get the models for the buildings. They get Revit. They have all this information and they, they go and work out what that massive concrete or steel costs. Mm. But then we rely on a sustainability consultant to interrogate the same model and tell us how much carbon's in there. So I do wonder how that kind of relationship between those those two roles at the moment may change in the future. Mm. Just on that, I can tell you, ASG, we're, we're now starting in the Middle East. We're just starting up a cost consultancy side to do exactly that. Move, mush the sustainability and cost consultancy into one thing so we can give advice on carbon embedded versus operational versus, you know, lifetime. For again, for North American people, project brief is UK for owner's project requirements. So I've got to be a bit of a translator here. We are two, two countries separated by one language, right? <laughs> <laughs> So the project brief, what you're doing there for me is you're you're letting the market solve the problem, right? You're putting out a performance brief, a performance requirement. We want this EUI, this level of carbon, and then you're letting the market solve that problem. Is that the way? Is that the strategy, I guess? I think on a macro scale for a project, yeah. yes. Small scale decisions on on things always come back to the client. You know, do you want this or that? And, you know, then there could still be a conversation around 
cost and and quality and and carbon and things. But yes, I mean, ultimately, we have a target and project needs to hit a certain amount of embodied carbon per meter squared. You know, so that's yeah. the that's the metric. We have our projects scored on a whole number of other criteria regularly, internal criteria. So we have to brief all of our consultants on what that is. If you've heard of like BRIAM or LEED, it's effectively an internal version of that, but it can distill down into yeah, embodied and operational and then the waste and, and biodiversity. So kind of four four measures of how, how are you doing? This is interesting, actually, because what you're doing is very similar to what British Land were doing when I was working with them. They would put out a really detailed brief OPR and then you had to meet it. And there were only certain firms who could deal with that and they became like the Premier League, but they were very strict on meeting that, right? It wasn't an option. They, their brief would say that this is the must-have, this is a nice-to-have. If you deviate from this, you have to come in and have a meeting with us and tell us why, right? And then, you know, if it's if there's a good argument for it, maybe. But generally, no, right? There's always compromise that need, is needed yeah. here or there. There's yeah. there's a lot of factors when you're in a development. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> no, no plot is the same. We yeah. more and more we're we're dealing, you know, you, if you think about what we're doing on the state, most of our buildings have some sort of retained element or heritage, yeah. you know, listed yeah. status so they ah. could be protected. So we have to balance all of these all of these things. And you try and hit operational efficiency and that might not be achievable with an existing facade unless you Certainly spend not. a whole load of money. Yeah. And and so there are absolutely compromises. But again, I think the skill of teams and you know people in my role and and similar roles is now that it used to just be cost and time with a bit of quality i suppose making sure that quality was hit now you've got to take into account carbon and potentially other you can see all the lights are going off around yeah, so, yeah sustainability in action the lights just went off <laughs> they've, they've gradually been going off as i've said but yeah you you have so many more factors to to deal with and you can't wait until the end of a design stage and, and get there and then yeah. and say let's let's understand it all and see where we're at. It's too late. You've you've without realizing made decisions that have added too much carbon or that have cost money. So you have to track these things, you know, I say real time, but you know, on a monthly basis. And I need I need the team that's got the skills and the ability to to kind of quickly throw up if there's a decision to be made or a direction of travel or guidance yeah. needed to to make sure we're heading in the right direction not just from cost not just from time but but for all of these things combined so it's a it is a real balancing act all of the new not necessarily new but the flexibility and the ability to adapt the person that's able to do that and hiring those professionals has it been hard for your teams to grow your teams to find the right talent at one time, I remember when we hit, we had just sold our business to a European firm and we were required to quickly become certified in ISO 14001 and 9001. And I remember some people were very adept at changing, adopting these, these practices. Others, of course, fought it. I, at the time, had sold the business and and it was tough for me. Yeah. To, to jump on board of that because I just saw the huge amount of resources that went into it when we had so many other obligations and priorities that but we had to set it aside. Having gone through all of that, you get to see the benefits and there's huge benefits. Yeah. In a helpful position where I work for a, an absolutely you know top company that is seen in the industry as a 
as a top client and an employer of these of these teams on these projects. So yeah, firstly, companies generally want to work with us. So that's a big benefit. I mean, the other thing is that they can see that we're we're setting goals or targets that are a challenge, but they could see that that's where the industry is going. Mm. So I don't find it hard to find those good good quality consultants. The challenge is further down the supply chain when you're talking about actually building something. And you guys can tell me how complex your US supply chain is, but I mean, over here, it's it's complicated and there's a lot of layers to it. And we can deal with with some, let's call them sophisticated, top-tier contractors and they could talk the language and do all of the data capture and reporting yeah. and things that that we need. And they can understand the design and the specifications that are sent their way. But you know, that gets cascaded down the supply chain and and you can have a large project, but then some quite quite small companies delivering elements of it. And then that's where you, you do hit a challenge. Yeah. Because where do we as a business, as a client or as a contractor stop that learning and sort of draw a line and say, well, we'll only we'll only help sort of teach so many, uh, you know, one layer down into subcontractors. But the the supply chain goes a lot deeper. And so you know, that is that is the challenge. I think designers, consultants, you know, they're pretty good these days. They know they know that this is where the industry is going. And so they're, you know, happy to invest in that and and do invest in that. And I see some great stuff coming from from some of the consultants we work with. Yeah. And that's, I guess, going back to my question about is all of this influencing architecture? Because we still see, particularly in North America, you know, where there's a lot of great talk and there's organizations like the Rocky Mountain Institute. And, you know, like there's this really fantastic picture being painted for, but then when you get down to the brass tacks, are we seeing that, and as you said, the lower level tiers, particularly within the, the supply chain? And I don't know, Adam, are we talking 50 years from now, 30 years? I mean, even when we have these targets of 2030 and 2050, you know, I was at a conference in the next province over here and I did the keynote there and people came up afterwards and they, and they so many of them, it's like, yeah, you have all these targets, but we're not going to hit them. Just, just, there's failure. There's 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 admitted failure within the industry at these at the supplier chain level. Let's just get let's talk about the COP targets, right? So when our dear leader Justin Trudeau goes to something and he comes back, I know you guys like him outside Canada. Yeah, so that's a mistake. <laughs> yeah, that is a big mistake. I know he's got nice hair and socks, but USA, Canada, right? Who are two of the worst at this? They go to these. COP 26, 27, or whatever we're calling them. And anything they come back and say, they they finish the conference, they just say, yeah, we're going to do net zero by blah, 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 right? Or carbon neutral by blah, blah, blah. None of that is binding. There is no legislation about it. So one thing, one, everything, every government official says from their conferences is not binding. Now, some countries take it more seriously than others. And to the credit of the UK, they are ahead and they are really hammering on this, right? But in Canada and America, they're never going to meet any of them targets, not even close. And this is why. The number one selling vehicle in North America, Canada and America, is an F-150 truck. You are never going to reach anything in an economy that worships an F-150 truck, ever. So I'm a cynical old man, right? I find it very upsetting when I see politicians lying at me because I understand what they're saying. And I find it really upsetting where I see 
well-meaning but stupid people super gluing themselves to things, right? Because yeah. that is a failure of education. They should be protesting Ford and F-150s, not sticking themselves to works of art. Yeah. But they're stupid. So what can you do? Stupid people will do stupid people things, right? I hope I've triggered you all out there because I meant to. Anyway, and I'm an angry you know, there's, There are some exceptions. Like New York City has taken huge steps. I'm still in awe that that political engine there has put their foot down. And I hope that they can keep it held down because there's a huge amount of influence pushing back. But they seem to draw a line in the sand. And I think about Vancouver, Canada, Vancouver, British Columbia. They're another city on the on the continent that, that has, has made some changes. But you're right, Adam. By and large, here there's a lot of cities that yeah, this is we're just getting lip service, you know, which is so, unfortunate. Do you remember what Saeed Alavar said when he came on a podcast? Change will yeah. come from the municipal level. Yeah. And frankly, Grosvenor of someone their size are almost like a municipality, right? Mm. They're a state within a state. So they have impact. So Grosvenor have taken the choice to do this, do that. They can affect a change. A municipality, a good one, can affect a change, right? So that's where it will come up. It will come up from grassroots. It won't come from showboating conferences like COP26, 27. I personally cannot watch them. They drive me crazy, right? I know they mean the, well. The um, London also you know, drives change. Yes. London has such a big role to play for the UK. Yeah. And... You know, I, again, I, I work in central London on on large projects. It's easy for for me to think that this is how it all, all is in in the UK. But you know, you go not too far out, and you know, development is quite different. It's behind, understandably so, because we are at the forefront at that bleeding edge. And smaller scale developers, you know, they've not set such targets. They've not no. set their pathways. They've not done these things not worked it all out there, you know, they're still driven by pound coins and just trying to make some kind of nice decisions along the way that might help sustainability or, or other other factors. But they're still, you know, in it for for profit. And that's not to say we aren't, but we we have a, a wider lens, you know, a wider perspective on what does profit mean? There's profit now and then there's, you know, adding value that that's gonna be there in the in the long term. Yeah, and this is where like luxury products and brands drive change, right? So a Tesla, in my opinion, if you drive a Tesla, that's the equivalent in the 1980s of having a gold Rolex. It's a flex. I'd argue that a Tesla is worse for the environment than any other car because of the horrendous chemicals in the batteries, the fact that small children dig those minerals out the ground, and what do we do with at disposal level? It's a disaster, right? But that still drives change for the good, right? It gets a conversation going. So a AAA development by Grosvenor or someone like that sets a standard. It's a luxury good that becomes mm. a normal good over time, right? So that's how capitalism works, I guess. But there's also a drive yeah. from those, you know, if you call us top developers, there's also a drive from top tenants and the people that are going to use our space. You know, it is, it isn't just us speculating that that there's yes. somebody out there that might want this. There's, there is demand, but again, you know, just like what I'm saying about us developing right at the bleeding edge or in the centre of town, if you move out, the you know the quality of tenants diminishes as well. Yes, yeah. So like in London, you might get a triple A, like an international firm comes in. We do Briam excellent everywhere, right? That's a market driver. But you know, when you're out in a suburban office building, it's not an issue, right? 
So you're right. There is a quality, as you get further away from centers of money and power, there is a a natural lower in quality because there's a natural lower, lower in of power and money available, right, to drive that change. Absolutely, yeah. Which is why legislation comes in, right? That's the role of legislation, to push good intentions and change across a whole economy and country, I guess, right? That's how I'd say it. Yeah. Legislation to a, to a degree, absolutely, but also just learning from others that, that lead the way. You know, the, it, I do think, you know, you can picture it as a ripple effect. It's just, yes. you know, those ripples move slowly. The thing that we're doing today will arrive, you know, in the, in the suburbs or in other places in the UK yeah. in years to come. Yeah, it's so just, that, uh, that AAA luxury, super sustainable office becomes a benchmark, right? That is, a, you know, that's what something great looks like. I want that. And it sort of like ripples out. You're right. Time is always a factor in anything like this, right? Well, that happened as a result of consolidation within the property development, the smaller firms. And there, I, where my brain goes with this is that, you know, in agricultural world here in, in Western Canada, we have a, a community, farming community, they're called the Hutterites. And, you know, they're, they're along the same path of the Mennonites and the Amish. So it's community-based farming. And unlike, say, the Amish, the Hutterites adapt technology like, no tomorrow. In fact, they are the leaders in agricultural technology. You know, their advancements are such that in their cattle barns or their poultry barns or whatever, they're operated basically with one or two individuals because the computers and the and the robots handle absolutely everything. But in their own within their own community, they're very, very conservative. But within their farming tech practices, they're incredibly high tech. But the result of that is that the smaller farmer, the smaller independent farmer can't compete with them. Yes, farming community of the Hutterites. They have and the, the resources they have is you know not I don't want to say it's free labor because, but these people come together as families and they produce incredible crops and products, but they do it as a consolidated operation where the independence there's no way they can compete. It's so difficult for them, and lots of the small operations are the last or the latter part of generations where the younger kids coming up don't want the farm. They don't want to deal with it. So going back to property development, will we see these changes in the outer, the perimeter areas as a result of consolidation? Or do we, will we see the demise of the small developer? What do you think will happen? I mean, I can see why that happens in in the farming and, and some of those sort of industries. I mean, I don't really see that translating into property development. That I mean, you do get large, large developers, I suppose, that, buy up land and and then you know maybe maybe can package things up or control that a bit more. But I still see quite a fragmented, I suppose, landscape in, in which property development occurs, uh, uh, certainly in the UK. Estates like the one we've described for Grosvenor, that that's that's been around for a long time and you can you can kind of aggregate bits of land together and and form something like that. But I just I don't really see that happening. The Edifice Complex will continue in just a moment. Can you find the drawing and supporting documents you need in less than a minute? Now you can with Echo. It's simple. Just type what you're looking for and press enter. Echo knows your building. Speak with a drawing specialist today. Ask about our special offer of painless onboarding plus six months free with Echo. Visit podcast.thedsoffer.com. That's podcast.thedsoffer.com. And now back to the show. The way it's, I think, the way I see it, I've been going to London till most of last this year, 
And it's interesting seeing how the market's changed since I've been away. And what I see in answer to your question, Robert, is a fragmentation. The market's developed into a Premier League, a second division, and a third division, right? So in the Premier League are the Groveners, the British Lands, and they employ the top three or four like construction firms like McAlpines, you know, or Lendlease or Multiplex who can deal with them at scale, right? There's only so many firms that can build a skyscraper, frankly, and there's probably about four or five, right? So you've got this Premier League, and then there's below them, there's a second division, below them, there's a third division, right? So I think at the moment, the market's fragmented. In the long run, actually, I think you're right, Robert. I think it will wrap up the third division and there'll just be a two-tier system where mm-hmm. there's like, you know, there's the Ronaldos and then there's everyone else is how I see it. But uh, I don't know. It's, it's, it, there's so many moving parts, you know, it's so complex. But the moment that technology, he who applies technology best wins right now, right? Because there is a war for talent, a shortage of talent, and technology is going to be Technology and good management and logistics management is going to be the difference between successful failure in the next 10 and 20 years. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, that's really going to sort the men out from the boys. And that's where scale comes in. So, you know, if you're McAlpines, things are looking pretty good for you right now. And they're going to be good for you for the next 10 or 20 years, I think. Would you disagree with that, Steve? Or Yeah, well... Uh, you're allowed to. It's all right. I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm just thinking about technology and contractors. I mean, these aren't two words that generally go together, are they? No. You know, the construction is notorious for being pretty backwards in terms of, you know, lack of innovation. <laughs> I, I do see these these contractors and, and design, you know, if we could design it in a way that, that allows and facilitates yeah. innovation in the way it's built. Absolutely. I do think things have to change. But at times, you know, I was looking into into a building site the other day and forming the basement. Digging it's still away. it's still <laughs> concrete, breaking things up, digging the ground. I don't don't see how we get away from that. You know, there aren't new products or or methods to to change some things. Not that I could see anyway. And that, you know, above ground the methods of construction. Once once you're out of the ground, I think there there is more scope for that. But then we kind of couple that with. I suppose picking up on some reuse stuff. If if you've got to try and retain a building and justify if you're going to knock it over, then less and less you'll be dealing with a you know a clean site, as particularly in London, where it is really simple and you're building a, a rectangular box or something. Yeah. And so every project has significant complexity. And how does technology get over that? You know, I, I'm not convinced that we've really got amazing technology yet that can that can actually build something well efficiently and and even in a simple kind of use case so, so how do you do it when it's super complex i know i agree with you it's people don't get how hard property development is right everyone thinks you and i are like monopoly men with a top hat and a monocle you know ho, 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 big cigar it is hard as hell and the first lesson you learn as a development manager is Anything below ground is super risky, and that's where all the stress is, right? <laughs> Until you get that building out of the basement, it's a nightmare. But this, I want to talk about the circular economy in your, no, your substack. So there is a phenomenon I've noticed in the UK in the last year where, let's just take a very recent example. So on Oxford Street, which is pretty much one of the prime shopping destinations in London, there is a shop, a shop called Marks & Spencer's, which is a unique brand, awesome place. So the one thing my wife and I miss from the UK. And they have a shop there that was built in the early, about 1905, I think it is. And they go, well, they want to knock it down and redevelop it. And there is an ongoing dispute 
between the developer and Marks and Spencers, the local authority and public opinion about whether that should be allowed to be knocked down. Now, bear in mind, they own this place, so they should be able to knock it down as they want. That aside, right? And the argument is this. Why are we knocking it down? Why don't we refurb it and keep all that embodied carbon in place? Can't argue with that, right? What's interesting is public opinion is driving this debate. Mm. In the past, that debate would have been between the developer and the authority having jurisdiction. And that was a money discussion, right? What's the ROI on knocking it down? How much taxes do I get out of it? Right now, there's this third player involved called public opinion and people super gluing themselves to things, right? And they're saying, and they're winning right now, I actually don't think they're going to be allowed to knock this down because public opinion is influencing the authority having jurisdiction, which is going to not let them do it. What do you think about that? I think public opinion, it needs to be treated carefully because <laughs> they, <laughs> do they know all of the facts? I mean, I absolutely agree with uh, that, you know, the statement, which is, you know, you should refurbish first and then, you know, yeah. you need to have an argument as why you should demolish and rebuild. But, you know, my personal view is, you should be putting together an argument which takes into account a lot of different factors to then explain why something should be demolished. And as I say, there could be many different reasons. And and I think I highly doubt that the public opinion is fully understood all of those. Now I'm I'm not saying it's right or wrong either way, but I don't think it's a it's a blanket rule. You know, there should be carefully considered argument. And you know, it could be, for example, the floor to ceiling height is not great. And you couple that with it's a poor kind of grade of concrete that's that's at risk of not not, you know, having a robust lifespan for, you know, another fifty years. So it could be a couple of small things that you say, well, do you know what? Okay, it will incur more embodied carbon, but then we'll have a be able to have a more efficient facade system or we'll have, you know, what about well being and the and the quality of the space and the ability for that to be refurbed in the future. Mm. You know, somehow you've got to boil all that down and there's not one rule. So it's a great example in terms of it bringing this kind of argument and discussion to the to the fore. But I think there's there's a lot still to, to happen to make sure these things are, you know, kind of properly understood. It's, it's interesting that the conversation in the press at the moment is about carbon, right? Because, you know, it's objective, and I know why the opponents of the scheme are doing it, because objectively you can get people who don't really understand things to say, yeah, there's all that carbon in there, why are you getting rid of it, right, without understanding the benefits of a rebuild and the life cycle that might generate. So fascinating. So let's talk about your sub-stack. So you have a sub-stack. There's a sub-stack yep. out there, everyone, and there will be links in the show notes to it. <laughs> so tell us the why you started writing and why you put it on sub-stack. Give us the, uh, the backstory on that. I started writing it in the middle of 2021. I didn't tell anyone about it. So it was one of these things where I, I so tested it out. And, and the, the first couple of issues uh, that, I, that I did, yeah. they're there. You can go read them now, but nobody yeah. really saw them uh, in terms of them landing on people's inbox. Uh, and then, yeah, beginning of this year, I thought, oh, I'll actually make it a bit more bit more regular and start telling people. So, you know, it's, 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 doing, it's doing well, but really it's, it's me if you come across something in the day job and and in the conversations you're having, you know, write a few words about it and share that with people in the industry or or whoever else wants to read it. So it's one of those things where I'm not really having to try too hard to do it. The thoughts or information or, or stories are there or out there to be told. It's just I 
kind of found a voice and platform that allows you to to yeah. share those things. So, you know, I really like Substack. I think it's it's dead simple. And as I say, it gives you that ability to just share a thought, you know, whether it's a paragraph or two or uh, slightly more long form. So what what is it called and what what what's the theme around what you're writing around then? It's Steve's newsletter, so it's uh, it's a catchy name. Now um, we'll, we'll see <laughs> we'll see whether it changes in the future. This is Sorry. this is what happens when you start something and don't intend to share it with anyone. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so yeah, stevesnewsletter.com. And um really it's anything to do with property development. You know, it's the kind of the big big stuff that I'm involved in, but you know, I've also shared a few thoughts on things like the metaverse, which does have a property angle and a real estate angle. And I think there's an opportunity to bring in, you know, some of these kind of politics and, and bits and pieces at times as well. Although, you know, I don't want to drift too far uh, away from the kind of, you know, the core, but yeah, it's sustainability, circular economy. These are the things that I'm closest to. So that they're the things that appear, appear most. Let's just put this out there now. And what's the definition of the circular economy? Can you sort of sum that up in a few sentences? Well, I mean, firstly, if you're if you're not taking from the ground or or mining virgin materials, then you're using stuff materials that that is already available or or, or out there that's been processed. So there's a nice diagram if you can imagine sort of rings of different sizes that go, that go round and loop back on each other. You could have a really tight loop where you actually reuse something in effectively the condition it's already in. So use a steel beam as a steel beam. That's great because you're not going to expend much energy to to make it from a steel beam to a steel beam. Or a slightly wider loop would be something where you recycle. It's technically still part of a circular economy if you take something that exists and you change change the state of it or do something to it and then reuse right. it in the future but you've kind of lowered the quality of it you've you've taken it a step down in in kind of value or in that regard so and you wouldn't be able to reuse it again in the higher level you couldn't take a block of concrete and crush it and then use it as a block of concrete again unless of course you, you kind of used it as an aggregate or something you yeah. know, if you sort of mean so the aim of it is i suppose firstly to avoid taking new materials from from the ground or mining them and secondly keep those keep those kind of uh, rings tight so that you can reuse things at the at the highest level is there any legislation to support this sort of adaptive reuse or reuse the materials in the, in the UK well it's it's developing uh, there's not really much out there there's a in london there's a, if you go for planning you now have to circular economy statement so just you know it basically says Here's what's in the building, and we'll we'll look at it and and see what can be you know captured. It's a bit of a first step, I think. Yeah. yeah, it shows again that that's a direction of travel. But yeah. again, certainly Grosvenor, me in particular, are, are are pushing this kind of what can we do? Can we share some materials? Can we take them out of one building and give them to another? And you know, the future in my eyes is is that there's you know marketplace there for these. For these things, at the moment, we're in a position where there are uh, clients like employers like me that are that are saying, "All oh, right, that project. Let's take something from that project. Let's extract that if we can. We'll expend some energy to or, or money to extract it. Maybe we've got another project around the corner because, as I say, we're in a state we we have multiple projects on at any one time, so we have the benefit of that. But you still have to 
hope that your projects line up in time and the the type of material that one project has and the other one needs. Yeah. And um, you know that is not ideal as a kind of overall solution to this this challenge. In my eyes, it's it needs a more liquid market and a kind of pool where if you have material, it can it could go into that market. And if you need material, you you search, you source from that market and pay and draw down from it. That's an interesting insight, actually. No market for used materials. You know, I, I, I mean, there there is, but it's not. You it's know, there, not there, or it's, I should say there are, not there is, but there are markets for reused materials, but it, not not in the way I'm really describing it. In, in mass market for all the types of materials that you find, there are just little pockets of, of that and they're very specific examples. And they're normally high-end materials, like, like brass or something. I like the analogy of the buffer vessel in engineering, right? The buffer vessel's there to provide stability and let things rise and fall more under more control. If there was a market for, I know, used I-beams and there was a place to store them, that would be like a buffer vessel in the market, right? It would like provide a bit of stability and would provide an option, right? So if there was, I don't know, just say there was a warehouse full of used I-beams and you could go in there as a construction firm or a developer and say, right, I want to secure, you know, X tons for my new job. And then you've got, oh, someone's turned the lights on at your place. <laughs> or you just had an so, X-ray. Somebody I mean, in the office, <laughs> after all. But a market for used materials, that's really interesting because that would only develop naturally, right? If the price of used materials went up to the point where it was so valuable, that market would be would form, right? And at the moment, mm-hmm. the market used materials doesn't form because the value of used materials is so low right now, right? And that will change. And getting an image of these graveyards for aircraft, you know, yeah. there's just acres and acres of unused aircraft parts and you don't see the airline industry is actually tapping into it. But in many res- respects, like it, we need, you're right, Adam, like we need to build up and there has to be some kind of a grave site for building materials. But eventually the inventories get large enough and useful enough that people can start to turn it into a resource. And we don't see that. And on a small scale, we see it, in the Habitat for Humanity projects, and I don't know if you, if you have those over in Europe, Steve, but these are basically housing projects where the owners become involved. And it's a big thing. It's, we see it all over, all over the, the continent, but they have, they have these restores. So when builders and developers end up with either leftover inventory items or there's some sort of recycling that's going on, they go to the restore. And now the restore serves the markets, the local markets. And I mean, in Calgary here, there might be, I think there's one or two restores. Most of the major cities have, have a restore that's there. But these are, we're not talking about I-beams and glass facades and, you know, chiller plants and, and that type of stuff. But you're right, that will happen. In Canada and America, that, that concept of the aircraft graveyard, people don't get that. You know, if you're Boeing, you need a part, it might be queer to go to that graveyard and get it. And they do, right? particularly mm. if they're supporting old fleets. But you need the space for that. So in the UK, there's no yeah. space for a graveyard like that. But in Canada or America, which are vast countries, there is. So maybe that's where that market forms. But it would only form based on economics, which is the value of new is so high that the value of reuse material goes up as well, right? And it creates that market. But, but what are the drivers for that? So you're saying, oh, re- reuse material would have to be so much more attractive. Well, Actually, there's probably more work to do with reused materials because you've got to understand it 
you know, it's not, it doesn't come with that nice label or tag that says how it was manufactured and it had sample testing and, and, and these things. But, yeah, you know, yeah. we need, we need to know what it is that we're, that we're buying, but we forget to take into account, you know, where the carbon kind of conversations is taking us, you know, so reused material will have, you know, the only carbon attached to that, if you're comparing it to something you buy new will be the, the carbon expended to, treat it or tidy it up and or do that testing so it would be drastically lower than you know a new material and if carbon has price tag that's higher than it is now i think it probably most people agree carbon is if you're paying for an offset or or something of that nature then carbon is cheap then you know that will be part of the the market driver and the market forces that that help you find that that balance let's talk about offsets but just on uh so I, I personally think London and the UK, but London in particular, because it's really a market only I've got familiarity with. Adaptive reuse of buildings there is a real thing, and it's great. Like you think of the Tate Modern Battersea Power Station, right? There are great examples of adaptive reuse there. I mean, they're still big projects. There's still lots of new materials in, but fundamentally, that's adaptive reuse of an old building and site, right? And I think that is probably where a lot of projects will go in the future. You know, instead of knocking a tower down, you'll probably just take it back to its core and reclad it and redo it. That's an adaptive reuse, right? Agreed, agreed. And the only time you would take the core down is or the structure is because there are there are other factors at play. So yeah. you know, if you now there's more tall buildings around, you could go higher, but you know, the foundations and that structure can't can't take, you know, another ten or fifteen floors. Well, you're gonna need to go back to ground and start again or the floor to ceiling height was only good for resi but you know you now want something else and it needs a greater floor to ceiling height structural zone you know these are reasons that are good justification if you can show that there's other arguments for you know in the long term that will have far better quality space it'll yeah, be but more you'd operational have to make that economic case right so the yeah, floor exactly. base of this therefore that therefore this therefore this calculation and there's nothing wrong with that because that forces you to do the deep thinking and make the right decision, right, based on some analysis. Whereas in the past, it was like normally one dude go, you know what, I can get fit 20 stories there, knock that down. Those were the days, right? Knock a few things down, build a skyscraper, move on. Then I still think that's gone. a starting point. And then, you know, those kind of early plans quickly get challenged yeah. these days, which is why you're knocking it down. You know, and that, and that yeah. challenge is coming quite early on and you know, catching these things. But yeah, even rewind two, three years ago, you wouldn't have had that that challenge. Why, why are you knocking it down? On a micro scale, like we've just completed two renovations on different properties. And it's hard to watch the rubbish bins leave. Like mm. we didn't knock the buildings down. You know, we kept as much of the original structure that we're here. These are from the 50s. We haven't changed, you know, the geometry at all of the spaces, just made them more efficient, more comfortable. But every time a rubbish bin leaves the property, it's it's painful to watch because you know it's just going to the dump. Yeah, it's going to landfill, right? You know, so and I and now I have done enough none of these enough of these projects now. I call it the nine bin project because most of them are between nine and twelve bins that you remove off of off these smaller renovations. That's a lot of embodied carbon that ends up in the dumps. I just wanted to bring that up so that people understand what we're talking about. Like these are great concepts, but ultimately there's a there's a bin that leaves. There's yeah. different scales. The fit out 
which I think is what, kind of what you're alluding to there, Robert, the stuff that is, you know, your wall linings, your partitions and these things versus the concrete or steel frame and the yeah. facade, you know, those things last longer. And so, you know, it's a, it's a slightly different conversation around whether they should stay or go. But the, there's a whole different conversation around fit out and how you work with tenants or you can control fit out so that it's more adaptable so that, you know, when a tenant changes, you don't necessarily rip everything out and go again. You know, that's the problem with, I suppose, leasing models. And there's just this incentive to keep starting over when there's a lot of material there that that is usable or could be used. And just because it was somebody else's, you know, the, the brief is from the new tenant, just rip it out and here's our new design. So things that we do, you know, on the landlord side that are trying to, you know, help show and demonstrate that fit out could be could be done more sustainably and uh, reuse materials and things like that. But that's a whole different challenge. And, you know, when when we talk about some of these materials, actually, I think some of the bigger ones are, are easier because they're big bits of carbon, effectively. Mm-hmm. You know, so they make a difference on your on your numbers. And they can be perhaps more readily understood because they're, you know, steel or concrete or glass and things like that. You know, when you get into fan core units or bits of components and they've got so many different parts to them or even timber is a challenge in that there's so many different types of wood and the condition it could be in is it rotted is it is it damp was it stained was it treated all these things how do you know what it is to be able to be sure that you understand it and want to use it again i think we have to walk before we run to sort of work out how these markets would would truly operate if they were to be sort of automated and liquid, like like it kind of described, otherwise you to start with are in a in a position where you're just presenting. Oh, I've got something over here. Does anyone want it? And you know yeah. that's that's a far more basic model. So this gets me on to uh, you know like the word climate change. It's the worst bit of branding I think I've ever seen in my life. Don Draper was not involved in that, right? It's actually we're talking about environmental pollution and resource problems here, right? To Robert's point, people are blind to how many things go in a, a rubbish bin and then go in landfill. They don't see that, right? No, Therefore, no. they're not sensitive to it and they're not aware of it. You know, if you want to really affect climate change and pollution and resource depletion, you should be showing every night. Do you know, in London, this many skips went into landfill this week. This is a, here's a webcam of the water pouring into the fucking sea, all the pollution that you people put down there, right? But no one does that because it's a bit depressing, right? So, but until you can get rid of the blindness to the waste, I don't think we're all we're just grab stupid people gluing themselves to the road, right? That's the problem. So it's a lack of education. It's a total lack of education, probably driven by the uh, property cycle. Let me just have one more little rant, and then we're going to get into your events before we wrap up. So I walk around London a lot because I am crazy and I walk everywhere. And I see everywhere I go, I see massive office spots going up. It says, this development is carbon neutral. And I look at that and I think, oh, yeah, really? So I wonder all electric, single point of failure. Let's not talk about that. But two, they're using carbon offsets, right? They're using offsets. So if a fat man pays a skinny man to stand next to him and certify himself as skinny, that's a, lot, that's a fat offset, right? <laughs> well, I'm calling bullshit on offsets. <laughs> I would agree that there's a lot of bad quality offsets out there. And uh, look, I am not an expert on offsets. So, yeah. you know, all I can say there is they're not all the same. 
there's a whole load of different factors to take into yeah. account. And I think really at the moment, a lot of people are buying offsets and they don't really know what they're buying. They might even be buying the same one that you know you bought yesterday. And it it's, could be even know, many people it. buying the same one and having it reused. So the, the problem with offsets is they're a luxury good. And depending where you are in the economic sandwich, if you're towards the upper end of the economic pile, you buy offsets, you assuage your conscience and you convert your signal. And you can still get on your plane and fly around the world and get your ozone layer hole going, right? So I, I would argue that offsets, A, are bullshit, and B, they are virtue signaling. They are a luxury good that enable people mm. who have money to tell stupid people that they're doing good stuff. Am I wrong? You're not far off. Put it this way, you can't, you can't build something for, for zero carbon, can you? No. So there's always going to be a residual yeah. you know, carbon incurred, if you want to think of it that way. So if you, if you want to say that you're net zero carbon, if that's the way the world wants to work, then you know, offset is a thing. And that just needs better clarity and, and yeah. understanding to make sure offsets are of high quality. And I'd say... Look out for um, for Grover in the space. I think um, what what we are doing is absolutely leading the way in terms of the the amount of due diligence to ensure we buy high quality. And like it or not, I think offsets will be there's a market for offsets as well in the future. You know, well there is already, but but that's only going to grow. But with a well educated and active market, I think the those ones that are of low quality at the moment or have been bought and sold. Uh, you know, in the last couple of years, I think I think they'll be found out. Yeah, if you want to say that you're net zero, yeah. you have to have an offset of some sort. Otherwise, it's not it's not possible. Yeah, I get why they're doing it, but you need an expose. So uh, there's a program here on HBO called uh, This Week with John Oliver, and he's a comedian who does sort of political rants. He did a whole rant on the total level of bullshit and car and offsets, and he didn't get too much pushback, which was really interesting, right? So I think everyone knows it's just one of those things we choose not to talk about it. But you're right, there's quality, there's different qualities. Let's not get on that rent. Last thing yeah, on that on. would be you know, carbon neutral, right? So yeah. if you're carbon neutral, you literally just do whatever you want. And that is your fat man analogy. Yes. Uh, it's not net zero because net zero is about reducing your emissions uh, to start with. And then the stuff that you really can't do because either the technology is there or you know it just can't be done on that project, then you are offsetting the residual. So the fat man is carbon neutral. Yeah, I agree, 100%. So you've been putting some events on recently? Yeah, I'm, a, I'm an event planner now. So <laughs> I realised I realized in June that it's quite tricky to, to put on an event. And yep. you know, it wasn't really that sophisticated either, but it, it actually really did the job. Uh, so I brought about 80 people together in London. It was an in-person event. I didn't worry about any of this tech and there was no live streaming whatsoever. We didn't even have microphones, but it made for a really good conversation. And I had about 20-something people on different panels talking throughout the day. Yeah, so this was called Circular Steel. And it looked at two things around the steel industry. Primarily, how do you reuse steel? But if we talk, go back to those loops that I was describing, then there's also a different part of the steel industry, which is recycling steel so the scrap steel is it's a good example of where you think oh does that just go to the dump or no s scrap steel is has a value it's yes. not it's not highly valuable but it's got a value yeah. and and demo contractors and these guys 
you know, absolutely recognize that. That's where they, you know, get some profit. So they pass that scrap on and it finds its way to furnaces around Europe and it comes back out as as new steel. And so there was one of the panels that that was on was looking at how, you know, the new steel products can also be low carbon. But to put into perspective, you know, some of the worst in terms of performance of, in terms of carbon can be new steel could be two and a half thousand kilograms of carbon per ton. And then some of the the best new steel performs at around 500. But the studies that then they launched a kind of an EPD just days before the event, one of the companies that's really pioneering material reuse and steel in particular, you know, that is around 50 kilograms of carbon. So, you know, there are significant differences and they can change the dial on on a project, but there's all sorts of complexities around this, you know, back to things like the testing, the understanding of the material. So I brought together insurers into that event, had contractors, designers, some clients. And, you know, we really were just talking through different challenges and, and aspects of this of this whole process. And supply chain is a is a big part of that, as I was explaining before. Cool. So I had in my mind, you all sat around, stared at an I-beam and went, discuss. You know, it's like... <laughs> we, we, we didn't have any steel samples on, on show. My brain works in very strange ways. As I get older, I get more stupid. Yeah. So that's and I get to witness that. I, you know, this is the fifth year of our podcast. I don't. I wouldn't say you're getting any stupider out of, but you know, sometimes your filters, yeah, are getting thinner. Let's just put it that yeah. way. Yeah. I get my ability to eat bullshit is just going down to zero. Frankly, do you know what I mean? It's like, and it's I can do that. I'm at the end of my career, so yeah. If you're going to fire me, good luck with that. Yeah, but for you it matters, right? Because you've got your whole career in front of you. So <laughs> I don't want to get you in trouble. Well, that's sort of my my question for our wind up question, Adam. Is yeah. does, is you know by the year twenty fifty comes along, I'll be dead. But let's just say you're you're having to give a lecture in twenty fifty. You're still doing event planning. Hi, mom. I'm still an event planner <laughs> with an engineering degree. We'll, um, we'll see. <laughs> but let's just say, for example, you get called back to, you know, in the year 2050 to give a, to give the keynote presentation on circular economy. What's the message that you're telling in the future? Is it, is it the same one today? How will it change? Well, I, I hope it will be that um, the industry's moved on and that is more mainstream. And, you know, perhaps some of those more technically challenging, you know, components and assemblies and these things are, are also in play at that point. So, you know, manufacturing and the supply chain hopefully will have realized that they play a part in this. You know, they're if you think about a factory that just gets raw materials in and, you know, churns out uh, products or puts components together, I mean, take back schemes and and these sorts of ideas where, you know, a lighting manufacturer could build a light, but there's all sorts of bits that go into that. But you know, in the future, will will the housing for that and the fixing points and things will, will they all be able to be changed and upgraded or you know re refinished so that they're, they're they're robust again and ready for use for another 10, 20 years? And you know, really, the only bit that's been swapped out for new is the you know the LED itself or or this sort of thing. So I think we'd be talking in in that keynote around how supply chains and this sort of manufacturing process has learned how to 
deal with existing materials and things that they manufactured coming coming back around again. That's kind of where some early signs of that are happening in in you know a couple of industries. Do you ever see manufacturers of these larger components like I beams is a good good one actually rather than selling the I beam but actually leasing it over the life expectancy and then buying being the, having the option to buy it back at the end of that agreed time for some huge discounted amount. I like that. That's definitely been talked about and. Lighting is actually a good example because I think Philips already have, have offered a service where it's, you know, you think of like SaaS or something, but this is lighting as a service. You know, you, you literally rent the lux level and, you know, if a light goes out, there's a service level agreement and they come and change that. And when the lights need changing, you know, in terms of they're at end of life, then Philips would take them back and, you know, they'll put new lights in and they'll go and refurbish the the ones that they took out. So, you know, some of those kind of things, and that actually works better in the fit-out model, you know, that we were talking about earlier, because mm. there's there's a great kind of frequency of, of churn of those those sorts of things. Yes, it could happen with things like steel and, you know, bigger materials like that, but, but they change so infrequently that I think it then poses a challenge of, well, buildings are more likely to change hands before the before those components. And so, you know, you get into all the legal challenges of ownership or <laughs> ownership of a building, but you don't actually own the things. You've just inherited a, a set of rental agreements on on the beams and the columns and things. So there's so much to unpick when you get into, into right. that. But fit out is something where I think, you know, you might find that that model kind of works its way into reality a bit quicker. That's really interesting. So that talk you would be giving would be called Design for Adaptive Reuse. That's going to become a design and build concept. There you go. Think, yeah. <laughs> there you go. Trademark Adam Moulton. I give it to you for free. That's right. Okay. That, Thanks, yeah, Adam. That'll, that'll come into the newsletter. Yeah. There's something else that I might mention in that keynote as well, and, and that'll be about information. I think the information that we hold and have on buildings that we've put together will be drastically different. And so... You know, the ability to reuse something in theory should be a lot easier because you know, you've, you've just said, Adam, design for, what was it? Design for flexibility? Or? Design for adaptive reuse. Yeah, adaptive reuse. Yeah. Well, if you've done that, so you know, also design for flexibility or design for deconstruction and you've got the information, then you should just have a building and want to redevelop it and know exactly what you can grab and take out with ease. Whereas yeah. you know, the, the buildings we deal with at the moment are not designed to be taken apart we fight them to get get materials out of them. And half the time, we don't know whether we can get the material out until we've tried and, and we then have to go and test it to work out what it is. You know, So we're trying to break into that, yeah. that loop. And if we can get into that and design the next buildings to be, to be ready and, and able to, to facilitate that, then you know, life should be a lot more straightforward. You know what? That is sort of within grasp in a way, right? Because everyone's been talking about this dream of the digital model and... Then tying that up with RFID tags in components. So you've got this ongoing like inventory stock taking thing going on, right? Mm. And the model knows when it when something's removed because the RFID tag goes dead. I don't know. But you can see how it's possible now, but the implementation is where it's gonna be difficult, right? My brief on the current project is a large project. And yeah. uh you know, I, I reiterated this yesterday uh, at a meeting to the whole team, but you know, I want there to be an asset model for this large building 
So in the UK, we have an O&M manual, operation and yeah. maintenance manual, that's, that's basically a bit of information that might be useful if you're if you're doing maintenance on, on the building. But it's not everything that was needed to put it together. It's just this sort of superficial layer. Think of it like an instruction manual. It's not like what you needed as a manufacturer to build it. It's just yeah. what you need to as a user. So all of that and more would all be in the same model. And then it needs to be live and updated if anyone modifies the building, does a fit out and and the, this sort of stuff. You know, you you if you do maintenance and change a, a boiler or a chiller on the roof or something, all of that needs to be updated. And then, you know, when you do come to do a refurbishment proper or or a redevelopment, you've got a model with everything there and it and it should be tagged and easily readable. That's the aim, and, and I'm I'm pushing for that now. We'll see if, if I'm able to achieve it oh, on this good. project. But. If you get that on that project, you should write that up as a white paper because that that would be quite similar in in its you know in its execution. So I've got one final question for me. What should we be talking about now that nobody's talking about in terms of property development? Obviously, I've got to say material reuse, and I'd have and been I disappointed that, if you didn't. <laughs> I, I think I think the key is. Other people are talking about it and doing it. So, you know, you might think what is on your site isn't really of use. But I think if you work out what's in your building early enough, you'll be able to find somebody that that's looking for it. And if you understand what's out there and incentivize and, and guide your design team that you want them to try and use reuse materials, then then they'll probably be able to design at least some aspects of that building to incorporate reuse material. But if you leave those things you know, past the initial briefing stage, then you're going to struggle to introduce it later because it needs to be kind of baked in right from the start. Agreed. Okay. There's some interesting stuff. I mean, there's no reason why you couldn't have a live inventory of buildings that are going to be refurbished or demolished. And, you know, and there becomes actually an opportunity for for a job where you get a surveyor that comes in, they get a notice that this building is going to be refurbished or or destroyed or whatever. They come in, they do a survey of useful materials, put it up online, and then it's a resource for architects and interior designers, structural engineers, to go to that live library and say, well, yeah, we could use this on this project or this project, or with a little bit of changing, we could use this, you know? 100%. You know, there's yeah. a there's a new roles that you've just described there, and, you know, there's a definitely a marketplace, but, you know, I think you just described a futures market as well. Mm-hmm. You know, what's, what's available, not now, but in the future. Yeah, 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 that's 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 true actually. Okay, I think we are done. So um we will be putting out in the episode notes all your coordinates to your substack and and you. So uh expect a tsunami of people, we shall see. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's I was keen to get you on just because you know the circular economy is a big thing. It's something people talk about but don't understand very often. I think you've done a pretty good job here of like getting down into the meat of this and you know it's difficult stuff, right? It's not yeah, easy. It's- it is not not simple, and uh, you know, as I say, you overlay things like who owns what at what point, and the uh, insurance questions. And insurance shouldn't be a barrier. Let's be clear on that. But you know, legally, how we procure things—that is a bigger challenge in my eyes. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Steve. Well, thanks for coming on the show. And uh, yeah, Steve, that was thanks great. For me. Yeah, thank you. The edifice complex will continue in just a moment. Are you struggling with paperwork, spreadsheet overload, and project management? Then Blue Rhythm is the solution to help you. Streamline your commissioning and project management process. Go paperless, increase efficiency, and save money. 
Blue Rhythm is commissioning and project management software by practitioners for practitioners, adapting to your workflows and processes, and doing things your way. Blue Rhythm provides painless and fast onboarding by bringing your existing workflows, forms, checklists, and issues logs into Blue Rhythm for you. You can use their pre-built templates to customize your commissioning workflows. And Blue Rhythm can fully handle the transition from your current software platform. Blue Rhythm is secure, scalable, and reliable, backed by amazing support, and accessible 24-7 on any Windows, iOS, or Android device. Why are you still using paper and hard-to-control spreadsheets? Start your free Blue Rhythm account today at BlueRhythm.com. Are we there yet? Yes, we are. The future promised real-time monitoring and control of our buildings, and now that is a reality with SensorSuite. The only question you need to ask yourself is, how much energy and water is my building wasting each year? SensorSuite will do the rest. With SensorSuite solutions, any existing building and equipment can be retrofitted with smart sensors and controls that generate an industry-leading high-resolution data feed, unlocking a level of operational optimization and visibility across your entire building portfolio. This allows analysis and targeted interventions that turn old analog buildings into intelligent, energy-efficient grid resources allowing monitoring and control at your fingertips through Apple, Android, and Windows devices. Make a difference to the environment and start saving money today. Go to SensorSuite.com or call toll-free 1-855-773-6767. And now, back to the show. Adam, thanks for arranging to get uh, Steve on. The podcast, this is our, what, our fifth year? Yeah. Five years. Almost six, probably six, that's for sure. You know, and... It's like we, it's like we have, I don't know, someday you and I should sit down and describe the picture that we see yeah. like 50 years from now. And we've been, what we've been doing for the last five years is finding the pieces of the puzzle, you know, so that when we're done with that picture, 50 years will the puzzle will have been created. And every time we bring on a guest, there's a piece of the puzzle. And I, what, what this piece for me with Steve was this concept of deep, ethos within a family business, the yeah, growth yeah. of the family, and and this concept of being a custodian, that really sunk in with me. You know, when I think about the transition of assets from generation to generation and how they get destroyed, you know, but but in companies where there's the vision for the company started hundreds of years ago so that there was there was longevity to it. You know, it didn't collapse. And it seems like the company that Steve has worked for, Grosvenor, is part of that. And I love the fact that an independent business entity has taken on a leadership role with global consequences. Like there's, you know, they've got a message that can be heard from all corners of the earth. Both of you guys had dialogue. I love listening to you talk with other people. (laughs) If there was anything, if there was it for this podcast, for me, the joy for me is listening to you. Talk rant. with the yeah well no like rant rant and, and but to talk to the guests I mean the knowledge is, is incredible both of you talked about the space between the buildings which we've never talked about really yeah. I mean, but the space between the buildings I love that concept and it's so important for integrating society into the world of property development isn't it so yeah one of the things I came away with as a development manager is the public realm is as important as the building where it sits how people move around it and through it. 
So a lot of the, certainly developer I used to work with, British Land, they were very, they put a lot of emphasis in the public realm. They wanted all their properties to become destinations where you could go see public artworks, have a nice experience walking through, get a coffee, sit around, relax, not just a building you walk by or go in, right? And once I saw that, I couldn't stop noticing it. You could see the developments where that thinking had been in place yeah. and others where it hadn't. And it's just what a top-end developer does, right? It's an opportunity to put great works of art in public view. You don't have to go to the National Gallery. You can walk. So if you walk through Regent's Place, which is one of my old jobs, you can see a statue by Anthony Gormley. There's a, there's a freeze from about the Trafalgar up on the wall somewhere. There's planting. There's lighting. It's nice at night and during the day. It's just a really nice destination in and of itself. Yeah, when you guys were talking, I mean, the, the two images that came to my mind, one was the Beauchard Gardens in Victoria, which is yeah. just stunning. You know, it's a world-class place for people to see landscaping, soft and hard landscaping and an incredible diversity in plants. Yeah. It's beautiful. It's a, it's a, it is. I mean, if, for our listeners, if you, if you ever get to Canada and you get out to the West Coast, you know, you need to pl- places to visit. It's, yeah. it is, I mean, it's stunning. But a public space, right? But then I also was thinking Riverwalk in Albuquerque. Yeah. I think it's Riverwalk. Is it Riverwalk in Albuquerque? No, you think San Antonio. San Antonio. That's yeah. what I'm thinking of. Yeah. I forgot the city, but I didn't forget my, my experience. Yeah. <laughs> that happens when you travel. Nice experience, right? It's a nice. It's, I always remember that. I stayed in a hotel and it backed onto the Riverwalk and you can walk around in the evening. It's all nice and safe and pleasant. It's lovely. Yeah, you know, and so you, you think about those experiences and it it is the space between the buildings that matters and the cafes and the the socialization, yeah. the food, the beverage, the the random chances of meeting people and you know, it's it, it just engages the mind and the heart, you know, it's so I thought that was listening to you guys talk about that it just drew attention to how important those spaces are. You made a statement that it's, it's so true, and that is the blindness to the waste. Yes. I thought that was very, very profound, and, and uh, yeah, there's people don't see it. They, and it's so huge in the industry. I was thinking the other day, like, I, got, I got something arrived by Amazon, of course, right? Yeah. Amazon guy throws <laughs> something at my door most days of the week. <laughs> so I open it up, I get it out, and I just put the cardboard box in the waste. And that's in my kitchen, which then goes through to the garage. It winds up on the road, then gets collected. You know, I thought the other day, well, I've just put that in a waste. I don't give it a second thought about what happens to it afterwards. Mm-hmm. There could be plastic in there. There could be this. There could be that. But I'm so fortunate to live in an affluent society where I can just put that in a box in my kitchen and not worry about where it goes afterwards, right? It doesn't come back and smack me in the face as a no. bad decision. Yeah. And you know, I was thinking that, so what you were talking about is getting the skips and the bins on a construction site. That's just the same thing. I empty the house, put it in there, it's going to go, and I don't give it a thought, right? So you can't blame people for being how they are. They don't see the downstream of what they do, right? right? You don't see the effluent going into the rivers and the water and the sea. You don't see the overfishing. You don't. Have you ever saw how big a trawler's net is? Yeah, it's an insane. It's insane. It yeah. scrapes the bottom of the ocean and just kills everything. It's like yeah. it is literally Thanos just going boom. Yeah, yeah, that square mile dead gone. No one sees that. All they see is the stuff in the supermarket, right? Yeah. So this is where I think the 
And no politician wants to do this because you don't want to be the negative dude who puts out on TV. Who's voting for you? Nobody, right? We've got to find some way to make this more visible because when it's visible, people will start considering it, right? So that's that's my take on it. I, f- I find the lack of visibility disturbing and I suffer from it myself and I'm more aware than most people of what goes on here, you know? So I don't know how you solve that problem. It's, it's something you've got to go to like the advertising industry and say, look, Tell me how to get this message out without, like, not without getting me fired as a politician, but getting it out there in a sort of positive way. I.e., the positive way is that this is what's going on, and we can all do something about it. Yeah, there was a thing in the seventies in the UK. It was about trash in the streets, and they just had these massive campaigns of like, "Don't put trash on the road. Put it in the bin," and it worked over a period of two or three years. That was on TV a lot, and in the end, levels of trash went down. Right. But it took two or three years of advertising to do that. Yeah. But you could do something similar anyway. This, this is just the random thoughts of a rambling old dude, right? But this, this is the things that go through my mind as I'm sitting on airplanes. <laughs> well, no, and, and I mean, on a very micro level, but it has macro influences. And yeah. We were in Montreal it was months ago. On the rubbish bins on the street, the waste bins, they had slots for recycled bottles and cans. So... It was really convenient for those people that were collecting bottles and cans yeah. to harvest those materials for recycling rather than having to dig in and pull out all that crap. Yeah. And now you got a huge mess and you got all the odors and the smells and, and yeah. whatnot. And the reason why I talk about this is that, that that's a small solution to a big problem that yeah. can be scaled up to buildings. It's hard for us to harvest materials from buildings because it ends up in the landfill and having to filter yeah. through the landfill, nobody wants to do it. But if you made it easy for when these buildings were refurbished or demolished or whatever, so that recycling those materials was methodical, you know, inventoried, put yeah. in a catalog, all that kinds of stuff that we would solve a lot of our our problem and the waste that we have in, in uh, land. Yeah, there was some interesting insights came out of that. So I love the whole yeah. idea of the circular economy, but it needs sort of like forming as a concept, right? But finding a market for reuse, like the analogy of the aeroplane graveyard, that is perfect, right? That is exactly right. where we need, that's the buffer vessel. The use of leases. So what Grosvenor as a developer and landlord do, they build a building and they might give an office over for a 30-year lease, right? But what they put in those leases is you will, as a condition of your lease, give us this information, that information, right? And they can impose terms on them, right? You will, you know, have an EUI of X or Y, or you will use this type of lighting, right? So they have the ability as a landlord, and a lot of landlords have this power, but they don't really exercise it very well. Mm -hmm. You know, the ability to pass on some good practice as a requirement of a lease. So this is where I think landlords have the ability to affect some great change. You don't have to be an asshole, but you know, you can say yeah. that you can't put in this, this, and this. It's got to be this or above, right? And you need to yeah. give us this data back so we can continue to analyze it. Yeah. No one's going to lease. They're going to do it. Yeah. So that's I what that. I loved about the ethos of the company. I mean, yeah. I asked about his competitors, you know, your competitors doing it too, because I mean, you work for a property developer and, you know, I get the sense through our dialogues over the years that I've known you that, it's a cutthroat business and oh, it's yeah. a doggy dog. And, and, but here we are talking about developers that obviously, and obviously profit is important, but they've also taken on these, the softer issues and are seeing the benefits of it, you know? So 
All things should... come back to Spider-Man, right? With great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Right? So developers have power. Yeah. And there are good developers and evil developers, right? So, you know, you still got to make money, right? But you can also choose to do some good things, like impose some good practice on your tenants is a, is a right. great example of that, right? Yeah. I love that other concept you were talking about of uh, lighting as a service. You know yeah, I mean? right. <laughs> that yeah. is and complex, but I love the concept of it. You know, like, so yes, I'm Phillips. You're, I'm going to give you a lighting system. You're going to lease it from me. And we we will, as part of our side of the agreement, we're going to commit to keep it this level of efficiency and any new technology that comes up, you will have it. You know, that's a great thing. It does make buying and selling property difficult. There's a house right near me. He's got solar panels all over it. He's one of the early people with the Ontario feed-in tariff. Mm. He's trying to sell that house and he has a 20-year contract with uh, Hydro One and he can't sell the house because no one wants to take on that third-party contract. Wow. And personally, what I know about development, I would never buy a property with a third-party contract. Yeah. Because I want to buy one-on-one transaction. I don't want a one-to-two transaction, right? Yep, yep. So it's fascinating. He's had, so houses sell quick near me. His house has been on the market for five months, not one taker because of those solar power panels. Oh, my God. He's got to get out of that. But I don't know how he does. Now, he makes money off it. I was spoken to him. I said, how much? He said, because he got early tariff. He's making about four grand a year off these panels. But no one wants that obligation because you don't, you're not in control of your roof. Right. Right. Yeah. That's so like marrying someone and finding out you've married two people, not one people. <laughs> <laughs> Some people might like that. <laughs> Exactly. It seems to me Buffett and the Berkshire stable has a company in the roofing business that leases roofs. And I don't know how successful they've been with it, but I mean, that goes back easily 10 years, maybe 15 years that I first read. I think it works when you do it on commercial industrial property, like, you know, like car parks, things like that, where the leases are long. Right. And the tenants, when it's your home, it's a different dynamic, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah. You know, and it's, uh, People look at their homes as investments, which they're 100% not, by the way, another chat show, but they look at it as their castle, right? That's the difference, I think. You know, a commercial, somebody who's building to rent a car park or an office has a completely different mindset. It's a money product for them. Yep. If it's your home, it's not. It's my home. It's where I bring my kids up. I don't want someone coming in and servicing panels on my roof, you know, without me controlling it. So I don't know. It's it's an interesting problem this guy's got. He's very frustrated. He wants to sell and retire, and he can't. And his house is basically a lower value than everyone around him right now, just because he's covered in solar panels. So a lesson there. Yeah. Early adopters always pay the price and teach the others, right? <laughs> well, we get the same con. We get the same results. Different concept with people who build buildings and that are they don't cater to the mass market and we when we had when we were practicing one of our big conversations with our clients was build stuff that other people want if yeah. you're in the mindset of developing your architecture and it's so bloody unique when you go to sell it you're going to have to find somebody else who was in the same mindset that you were when you developed it and but you've eliminated like 80% of the marketplace we have a name in the UK they call them follies Follies. Yeah. yeah, it's a folly. So you have all this money. This started in the Victorian period. All the money was coming back in from the empire. So they'd build a big pile in the country and they would always build what's called a folly, a stupid piece of like architecture. They'd say to the architect, just go nuts, put something there, you know, and the architect would go nuts. 
And they were called Follies. No one wanted them. No one used them. They looked interesting and you couldn't sell them for anything. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, what a waste, you know, what a complete waste. And, you know, we were able to get people to change the geometry of the buildings and the materials that they use. So they weren't so freaking bizarre that when they did put them up for sale that, and that's, and that's it. You have to, everybody needs to understand that every asset that you buy, particularly you're talking large assets, like a house, you get to sell it at some point. Yes. And, you know, if you're lucky, you've realized some gain on it that's outpaced inflation or whatever. But if you can't sell it. You've got a stranded asset, right? You've got a stranded asset. And, and that needs to be taught uh, to yeah. people, the, the concept of a stranded asset. And that's what you see a lot of them. And I don't want, I, you know, I mean, these people that are building 25, 30,000 square foot mansions. And there's been so many of them built in the last 20 years. If you have the money to buy a 30,000 square foot mansion, why would you buy somebody else's dreams? Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Right. You know, like you would build, if you had that kind of wealth, you would be doing your own again. And I suppose that's why there's been so many of them built because people are building their dreams. But at some point, demographics tells us that there's going to be lots of these houses for sale and who's going to buy them? And what do you do with them? Become small hospitals is what they become. Yeah. Look at uh, Japan. If you want to see the future of property in North America, look at what's happening in Japan. They're depopulating and that's coming for us. There was a property and stock market crash in 1999 following a, a earthquake and the markets went down 70% housing, 80% stock market. And the markets haven't recovered in 32 years to their 1999 level. Wow. There's two generations in Japan who've never known property go up in value. It's laughable. It's, it's, it's hilarious to them that that might happen. Now, yeah. you come here... Like my kids who are like, you know, in their mid, late 20s now, they've never known anything but everything go up. Stocks, houses, cars, everything is up and to the right. And by the time they're my age, they will be like Japanese kids. It will be like, oh, of course, property never goes up. You just buy it and use it. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's where it's going. But it's hard to, you're always conditioned by the immediate past, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good point, actually. Tomorrow will be just like yesterday. That's how we're designed. I don't know. It's there's so many ways to go with this, but yeah, it's it's interesting. I love this the concept of social economy. Steve is that's why I like Steve. He's doing good work and he's trying to get that conversation going. And that is a big conversation, and it needs to be had more often. You know, where does the waste go? Where does this go? How can we reuse? How can we reuse? Yeah, I, and I want to draw back attention. Steve graduated from university like 14 years ago. Yeah, he's new <laughs> like, right? His acceleration in that messaging is, is like yeah. I said, in the introduction, it's phenomenal and good on him. And uh, it was great having him on. And of course, if I was around in 50 years from now or 2050, I'd love to be at his keynote to see what, what he talks about. So Let's close out with this. Remember what Steve Burrow said to us. This is a great industry to be in and it's never been a better time to be working in property, right? That's it. Right. 100%. Yep. All right, man. See you on the next one. (laughs) Thanks, guys. Cheers, man. Bye. You've been listening to the Edifice Complex podcast with Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean. To access show notes for this episode, visit edificecomplexpodcast.com. Also, if you would like Robert or Adam to speak, teach, or consult on your project or business, please email admin at edificecomplexpodcast.com. See you next time.